This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, why are women more likely to get Alzheimer's disease than men? Better screening for a rare type of diabetes could save side effects and health costs. How funnel web spider venom, or at least one of the substances in it, might save your heart. And a topic close to your heart, Norman. Well, not that close. Your knees. Yeah, my knees. Let's just not talk about my knees for the moment. Just to give you an idea, though, of the scope of the impact of knee arthritis, there are about 70,000 knee replacements a year in Australia, and that is literally tip of the iceberg when it comes to the numbers of people limping around with sore knees. And, of course, I'm not one of them, absolutely not. Now, one quite expensive solution, which I have not tried, I'll tell you, being touted to treat knee arthritis are stem cell injections, often in so-called regeneration clinics. The theory is that they help the joint surfaces regrow and settle down inflammation. David Hunter is Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Sydney and he claims that essentially the providers are snake oil salesmen and is conducting a large trial in the area. David, welcome back to the Health Report. Thanks for having me along, Norman. Is this the same as platelet-rich plasma, which we've spoken about before in the health report? It's a different product. So platelet-rich plasma obviously uses platelets which potentially have some regenerative potential, but this is stem cells themselves, which could be harvested either from the iliac crest or fat and derived from the person themselves or come from a bank. So it's a different product. Right. So you go into the clinic and they might take tissue from you, do some sort of process on it and then inject it back in. Typically, yes, yeah. So usually it happens at the same procedure, same place, same day. And you, I think you've documented there are about 60 practitioners of this in Australia. Yeah, so the last evidence that came through from the Therapeutic Goods Administration would suggest there's about 60 to 70 regenerative medicine clinics that are practising this type of procedure out there, uh, again, predominantly in, in the community. How much does it cost? It varies a lot, but generally an injection of stem cells into the knee will set someone back at minimum about $5,000. 5000 for one injection? Correct. Yeah, it's staggering. And what course? How long is the course? I mean, is it just one injection? or? It varies again. Sometimes people administer up to three to four injections. So you can understand that if the minimum is $5,000, but I know of people that are being quoted $12,000, three to four injections is a substantial amount of money. Now, you've called them snake oil salesmen. You wouldn't say that unless you thought so. Why? What's the basis? You don't think there's any benefit? We don't know. That's the bottom line. There isn't sufficient evidence at this point in time from good quality clinical trials to suggest that they provide benefit over and above a saltwater injection. That's why guidelines don't recommend their use at this point in time until we've got better evidence. Why is the TGA allowing it to happen? The TGA has restricted some of its use in terms of uh, direct-to-consumer advertising, but they, they clearly state on their website that they don't limit what's happening in clinical practice. They will monitor safety if they're notified of safety concerns, but outside of that, this is essentially an unregulated market. So they've washed their hands of it. Are there documented harms? The real risk and concern here is of people being administered something that doesn't work, but outside of that, infection... Uh, potentially adverse effects of the stem cells themselves in terms of uh, growing tumours and other things like that that may potentially occur from stem cell injections. So you're doing a clinical trial? We are, and I think the bottom line here is that 
we want to generate better evidence. These may well work, but until we've got better evidence, we can't advocate for their widespread use. And so we're doing both in Sydney and Hobart a trial called the Sculptor Study, S-C-U-L-P-T-O-R, which administers these stem cell injections in a randomised controlled trial compared to saltwater injections and follows these people over two years to really work out, does this work? Does this provide a benefit that merits the potential concerns that could come? And obviously there's going to be no charge for getting the injection. Which is, again, a huge concern with what's happening in the general community. A lot of people out there who are turning up to these regenerative medicine clinics are doing so under the auspices of a trial, but being charged these large amounts of money, which shouldn't happen in the context of a clinical trial. If you're in a clinical trial, you shouldn't be paying for the treatment that you're otherwise receiving. So are you going to do a, a dummy extraction from the bone on the, you know, on the side of your pelvis, or are you going to use one of the products? So we're using stem cells from a, a group called Sonata, uh, which has a stem cell bank that we're using those cells for because they have really interesting properties that may be somewhat regenerative, at least in in pilot studies. So the stem cells are not, uh, there's no question that there are stem cells. It's just a question of whether the stem cells work. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So if you want to take part in the trial, if you're limping around Hobart or Sydney, what, what, what do you do? It's the Sculptor study or Sculptor trial. So if you go along to Google and type that in, we're based at Royal North Shore Hospital in the Colling Institute. And our, our colleagues in Hobart are based at the Menzies in, in Hobart. So really looking forward to hearing from you if you're interested in stem cells in a well-regulated clinical trial. And we hope that you give the health report first dibs on the results. We'll undoubtedly do, Norman, particularly looking after you. Yeah. David, thank you. As I limp Thanks. into the sunset. David Hunter is <laughs> Professor of Rheumatology at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, and this is The Health Report. If you're a woman, you're twice as likely as a man to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. But why? Well, it's a question researchers have been picking over for years. Women do tend to live longer than men, but that doesn't account for the whole picture. Another possible answer lies with something called cognitive reserve, brain heft build up through a mixture of things like education and time in the workforce, which does seem to protect against cognitive decline. If older women were less likely to have had the same opportunities for education and work as their male counterparts, could that be why women are more likely to have Alzheimer's disease? Well, a study following hundreds of older Tasmanians over several years has been trying to tease this apart, and one of its authors is Jane Alty. Jane, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. So first things first, were you able to tell if education or work protected against Alzheimer's disease? That's a very good question. Um, we know from um, other studies that education is um, extremely important as a dementia risk factor. In other words, people that have had uh, lower levels of education, shorter education, are certainly at higher um, risk of going on to develop dementia. What we were really interested in and looking at, though, was was that risk different for men and women? Because historically, we know that um, 
and this is still the case in many countries, of course, not necessarily historically, that girls have had less opportunities for education beyond secondary school and sometimes even primary school. And fewer women have gone on to have um, university education. So we do know on the whole that women have tended to have um, shorter lengths of education than men. So we really wanted to look not just at how does having a longer education reduce your risk of dementia, but is that different for men and women? But it, but it was it, it, there was a difference in men and women's education, but it didn't seem to have the protective effect that you hoped it might in women. Yes, that's that's part of the story. In in our um, longitudinal study, which is called the Tasmanian Healthy Brain Project, we followed up just over 500 people over about five years. And Tasmania is a great place for these sorts of um, studies because um, Tasmanians tend not to move around. So we managed to keep hold of that group of people and follow them up carefully over th those five years. And what we could see is that um, both men and women who had longer education, they had better cognitive scores than those with shorter education. But what was interesting is that another measure of cognitive reserve, which is innate, so your IQ, um, your ability to pick up new concepts, that also seemed to be having a different effect in men than women. So what we saw is that men with higher estimated cognitive reserve were having a slower change as they aged of their cognitive functions. So by this, I mean that as we all get older, many of us will get a slight slowing in memory and planning and our cognitive uh, functions. And this is part of normal ageing for many people. But what we could see is that men with higher levels of cognitive reserve had a less rapid progression of those changes. And that was really what we expected. So that cognitive reserve was protecting the men's brains. But in women, surprisingly, we saw a different pattern. And that was that whether, whether the women had a higher level of cognitive reserve or a lower level, um, they progressed at the same rate. So women that had had a longer education overall had higher scores, but the rate that they changed over those five years was the same as women that had had the lower levels of cognitive reserve. So in summary, what we were seeing is that this cognitive reserve seemed to be having a nice protective effect on the men, as we would expect. But for some reason, it just was not having that same protective effect on women. We don't know the reasons for that, but I think what this study is really highlighting is that it's really important when we're looking at modifiable risk factors for dementia that we do look at men and women separately, because certainly in our study, looking at cognitive reserve, we were seeing different effects on the men and women for this um, cognitive reserve protective effect. Right, because this trend has been seen in other studies that have lumped men and women together. You go, okay, there's a trend here, you know, education's important, but when you tease it out, that hasn't been the case for women, which is pretty disappointing. So what now? Because uh, the WHO's push to modify risk factors, one of them is education. We need to be studying men and women differently. What about other, is there anything that we know does protect against um, dementia in both men and women? Yeah, so there's been a lot of research in this field and there's now 12 modifiable risk factors for dementia. And I would encourage people who are interested to look up um, the Lancet Commission um, 
dementia prevention paper, which is freely accessible. If you just put dementia prevention, um, Livingston et al. into Google, you'll get that paper. And that outlines in detail the evidence for these 12 modifiable dementia risk factors that account for about 40% of dementia cases. And these can be broadly split into medical risk factors, such as controlling blood pressure and diabetes, and then lifestyle risk factors, such as stopping smoking, reducing alcohol intake, doing more physical activity, and so on. So I would really encourage people that are listening to follow that still. I think our study is one study. I think it raises the important point that we probably should be looking at men and women separately in terms of how those risk factors um, modify risk. But ultimately, I would still give the advice to people, follow those risk factors, because we know that dementia is not inevitable. Many people used to think, OK, we're, we're inevitable that we're going to get dementia as we get older. And that just really is not the case. As I say, 40 percent of um, dementia cases are now attributable to these risk factors, mm. which is good news, really, because it means that through our life course, we can start to do something about our risk, particularly those lifestyle factors, which are often quite hard to address, but effectively doing more, moving more, interacting more and so on really seems to have a good effect. Indeed. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Associate Professor Jane Alty is co-director of the Island Clinic at the University of Tasmania and staff specialist in neurology and stroke at Royal Hobart Hospital. Now, you may not be a fan of spiders, but stay with me on this one, because one of Australia's most deadly spiders may be your friend if you ever have a heart attack or even a stroke. Such an event means reduced oxygen to the organ and a damaged environment which kills off even more heart muscle. But a group from the University of Queensland and the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute have found that a protein in the venom of the Kagari, that's Fraser Island, funnel-web spider, has the ability to block specialised channels in heart cells to stop them dying. This protein could even help to preserve organs prior to transplant. Associate Professor Nathan Palpunt from the University of Queensland is on the research team and spoke with Health Report producer Diane Dean. Venoms have long been known to be a rich resource for drugs that have really potent therapeutic benefits. One of the best examples would be a drug known as captopril, which is a blood pressure medicine which was identified in the venom of a pit viper. And this was back in the 1980s. And this is a rich field of research that's been understanding and the ability to dissect out the different molecules in venom to try to understand whether we can develop new therapies for heart disease as well as pain management. And the work around this particular drug goes back 20 years to work identifying related molecules in tarantula spiders that have therapeutic benefits in stroke models. And so in this context, the drugs that have been identified in the Fraser Island funnel web spider go back a long ways to our understanding of venom-derived molecules that are really potent blockers of channels or pathways that are associated with cell death. How do you narrow this down about which venom is the most likely? My close colleague, Professor Glenn King, who is one of the world's experts in venoms and drug development from venoms, has been studying these spiders for many decades. 
And we have an insectarium here at the Institute for Molecular Bioscience where we can collect this venom and study it in great detail. And by doing a comparison of molecules that have been found in the Fraser Island funnel web, we were able to find historic molecules that had been discovered 20 years ago that had really interesting biological functions. And simply by this comparison of molecules, we happened across this one molecule that happens to be now the world's most potent inhibitor of this channel that we're studying that's associated with blocking injuries to cells in the brain and the heart in the context of injuries like stroke and heart attack. How would that work in practice? So the molecule is known as HI1A and is one of thousands that are found in the funnel web spider's venom. This one molecule has incredible therapeutic benefits in the context of heart attacks and strokes. When a heart attack happens, the heart is deprived of the blood flow to the tissue. And as a consequence, the key nutrients and oxygen delivery are compromised to the tissue. And so this creates a very stressful environment for the heart and billions of cells can die as a result of this kind of injury. And what we are working toward is development of this drug that acts to block the death signal that happens during a heart attack. And by blocking that signal, this gives doctors the chance to be able to get those patients to the hospital and improves the recovery of these patients after they've had that organ reperfused and recovering them. In this context, the heart is much healthier and that contractile sort of capabilities of the heart are much more robust in the context of treatment with this particular drug. So it's not like you have this drug and then instantly everything's fine. You do need further supervision and then further treatment. This drug does not prevent the heart attack from happening in the first place. It also doesn't help break up the blood clot that is the actual cause of the heart attack. What this drug is focused on is preventing the cells from the stress responses that happen during a heart attack, where the doctors can provide this drug to help the heart tolerate the injury and then get them to the hospital so that they can have the organ reperfused. About production, would that involve a lot of spiders? Well, this is a great question because how do we actually generate enough drug to be able to support patients who are having a heart attack around the world? And once we've identified the molecule from the venom of the spider, we know exactly how it's made. And so we now can take synthetic methods or other kinds of approaches in the lab to just make it just like a normal drug manufacturing pipeline where we can derive that drug outside of needing spiders to source that. Basically, to just use yeast or bacteria or other methods to just simply manufacture lots of this drug. And you envisage it being useful for hearts that are about to be transplanted, that it will prolong the life of a heart before it's transplanted? Yes, exactly right. The heart is very sensitive to long transport times, which is a key variable when it comes to organ donation. And this window of time when a heart can be outside of the body is very short. It's just a few hours. And so this really limits the ability to get hearts, especially in Australia, where there's such a distance between cities. There's a limitation in being able to keep organs alive over those long distances. And our goal is to develop and test whether this drug may be useful for putting into the preservation solution for donated hearts so that we can increase the distance of transporting those hearts to recipients from longer distances around Australia. And this, of course, would be hopefully uh, beneficial across many transplant programs around the world. Associate Professor Nathan Pavan from the University of Queensland.
If I asked you how many types of diabetes there are, you might think I was asking a trick question. There's type 1 and type 2, right? Or maybe if you're very clever, you might add gestational diabetes into the mix. But in fact, there are many different types of diabetes. One of them is called maturity onset diabetes of the young, or MODI. It's actually one of the most common genetic forms of diabetes, but diagnosis can take a long time. One person with MODI is Laura. It took me about 11 years to get diagnosed with, so it was a pretty long journey. I was originally diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 17. I had very atypical presentation. It didn't really look like what other people with type 1 diabetes had. So I'd always thought that it was something a bit different and wasn't type 1, but the doctors were pretty sure it was. That didn't stop me from asking doctors at every appointment if they could test me for other types of diabetes, but no one wanted to test me for it because the testing was too expensive and also Modi is seen as too rare, so it seemed like the chances of me having it was too low. I ended up having to sign myself up for a clinical trial and got the correct diagnosis last year. Quality of life is just so different now. My blood sugars were managed very well, so that wasn't an issue, but it was more an issue with the burden of having to give injections all day, every day for years on end compared to what I have now, which is just one tablet a day. And sometimes I forget I have diabetes now, which is just yeah, such an incredible feeling. People with Modi are often misdiagnosed as having type 1 or type 2 diabetes, even though, as we just heard from Laura, the treatment can be quite different. Some experts are calling for more widespread genetic testing of Modi, and one of them is clinical geneticist Kathy Wu. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you for having me. Why is early genetic testing important? So early genetic testing is important um, in order to diagnose this form of um, genetic diabetes, MODI, as you say, maturity onset diabetes of the young, um, because currently we don't have very good clinical criteria to allow its clinical diagnosis. So we need genetic testing for it. And as you heard from Noah, that diagnosing MODI, um, for example, um, can often inform um, treatment of diabetes. Um, so the most common, so there are many different forms of MODI, and the most common forms of MODI um, such as the one that Laura has, will allow us to use an oral medication um, called sulfonylurea, and that's a medication that can reduce blood sugar. That's been around and used for you know many decades. Um, so that um, you know will allow us to avoid unnecessary insulin treatment. But not only that, the you know the associated complications from insulin, um, such as hypoglycemic um, episodes, um, that can be life-threatening and not only the you know the complications but also the health you know the lifestyle impact that Laura mentioned as well that um, you know you need to when one is on insulin um, they need to uh, monitor their blood sugar regularly they need to eat at regular intervals so we are able to mitigate the downside of the unnecessary treatment. Yeah, insulin, you say you've got, it's a lifestyle thing, you're constantly monitoring, there's potential sort of swings in blood sugar. And then also there's healthcare costs, there's costs to the healthcare system of someone being on insulin. So if Modi is something that is known about, 
we've got a test for it, presumably, if people like Laura are able to receive that diagnosis. What's the current status of genetic testing? The reason why it's taken um, Laura so long to get a diagnosis and also it's been reported, um, which is not uncommon, um, it's now that the median time to diagnosis of Modi, um, sorry, the median um, duration of diabetes before a genetic diagnosis of Modi is made is about seven years, and that's based on the UK data. And um, I would say that Australian data would be very similar to that. So the reason why it's taking so long, I think um, we, we think that there is a multitude of factors. Um, one is the awareness, um, there is not enough awareness of Modi, and two is the access to genetic testing, and three is the cost of testing. So so if we are not aware of Modi, we are not going to suspect that clinically we are not going to think about genetic testing. And in terms of genetic testing currently, um, you know, most non-genetics doctors are not equipped to talking about um, genetic testing with their patients um, because of all the nuances around genetic testing, not only with implications to the patient being tested, but also to the wider family insurance implications, etc. So they often refer patients to a clinical genetic service. But in Australia, unfortunately, most genetic services are under-resourced and therefore they have long waiting lists. Um, so often patients will have to wait for months before they get seen by a genetic counsellor, get tested and then get the result. Um, so access is another barrier. And then, of course, the cost of testing. Currently, we don't have public funding for testing. Um, so we are, and therefore our research was hoping to increase the awareness and also increase the access to genetic testing by putting um, the responsibility of genetic testing in the hands of the endocrinologist in the diabetes clinic. At point of care, while they're seeing a patient, you know, ideally, you know, at the time of the of the diabetes diagnosis, they get a genetic test and then they get the results back within three to four weeks. Um, and then they can use the result in a timely fashion to um, to make management decisions. And then once they've received that diagnosis, then they get the treatment scheme, which depending on what form of modi they have, might be as simple as just that oral medication that we heard Laura speaking about before, uh, or it could be other things as well. So tell me about the pilot project that you've, um, that you've just con uh, concluded. Yeah, so we have found that the this modi um, genetic form of diabetes actually are more common than we previously thought. Um, we found about 20% of the participants that were enrolled in our study, um, they have modi um, diabetes um, following molecular genetic testing. So, you know, it's under-recognized, under-diagnosed, and therefore we are calling for more genetic testing. Um, ideally, you know, as I mentioned, uh, point of care um, by undertaken by the endocrinologist um, in the diabetes clinic um, to, you know, increase um, the, the diagnostic, to, to you know, um, facilitate the, the diagnosis of MODI. And we are hoping that, you know, with more testing being done, more um, case, more, more patients being diagnosed with MODI, we can do um, the into public health implications of these um, potentially can be cost-saving. As you mentioned, Tegan, earlier before that, you know, it's got, we can avoid unnecessary insulin, but also the healthcare costs associated with insulin, with um, complications from insulin. So potentially it's cost-saving for the entire Australian healthcare system. We are hoping to make the case to be able to um, advocate for um, public funding for more testing.
So win-win-win for the health system, the clinicians and for the patients themselves. Cathy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr Cathy Wu is a clinical geneticist at St Vincent's and associate professor at the University of New South Wales, Sydney University and the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Now, Tegan, have a listen to this because it's me taking one for the team. Ooh. So I can't wait any longer. This is it. No, I think it's your turn. So what it's I do, to... deep breath. We're going to slowly <laughs> step in foot first yeah. and then you're going to breathe into the belly. You'll start to hyperventilate. So just taking I'm that breath. I'm hyperventilating already. <laughs> so we're going to calm down that right. breath and send it into the belly. Okay. When you're ready. And what you can't hear is my scream as I go into an ice bath. An ice bath. I'm loving this for you, Norman, but Why? <laughs> Well, it's so popular, you can't believe. And there's this guy from the Netherlands, I think he is, Wim Hof. He's coming to huge audience here in Australia um, and everybody knows about him. And I thought I'd test it out for myself and see what the benefits are. I can't wait to hear the rest of that story. Next week. <laughs> we'll see you then. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.